They happen every day and every night. Panicked, frantic calls to 911 in a crisis. Someone's life often in the balance. Often the callers can barely keep it together. Their fear forces its way through the phone line. The 20 or so seconds of this 911 call in California is all I want to hear of it, or likely that you want to hear. I chose what I did as a brief sample to show how most calls of this type sound. Where is your emergency? Knowing that is important to the story I've been telling, my unofficial probe into the murder of Faith Hedgepeth in Chapel Hill, North Carolina in 2012. She was 19, her case unresolved all these years later. The person or persons responsible have paid no price. Maybe we can do something to change that. This is Pursuit, the podcast, episode six, the 911 call. I'm Tom Gasparoli. Once again, parts of this episode may be disturbing. The call was made at 11.08 on a Friday morning after Faith was attacked sometime during the night. To explore this call properly and its likely role as a powerful piece of evidence in this case, we simply have to hear significant parts of it. All right, what, what did you say your name was again? I know it's hard on Faith's family and friends. I'll use it as carefully and efficiently as possible, but there has to be enough to paint a picture. If Faith's murder is going to get solved, everything that can be needs to be examined, questioned, challenged, understood. Are you right by her now? Yes. As much as a quarter of the time in a criminal matter, the 911 caller has something to do with the crime. There's FBI research to support that. I have no doubt that the Chapel Hill police think the 911 call made by Faith's roommate, Karina Rosario, is a critical element to consider in their investigation. They've never conceded that, but again, it just makes sense when it's analyzed that it would be. The police take on it, though, is shielded from our view. What room is she in? She's in my bedroom. I enlisted the help of two experts in statement analysis, to take the 911 call apart, so to speak, to see if it's what we would expect. In a nutshell, from the very first word, it isn't. Dara 911, where is your emergency? I, um, I just like to sleep in my friend's place and be unconscious. Yeah, and that's, that's the biggest problem I have with it. Some of it can be explained because of uh, if she's somewhat traumatized, but to start off with, you know, hi, like this is just, I'm calling, you know, one of my friends or something, seems very unusual to start off that way. Now again, that's how you usually start off a phone call, perhaps she does with, with uh, when she makes a phone call. And so she's just used to doing that. But again, it kind of re- minimizes the, uh, the suddenness for, you know, I, I need help. You know, my friend needs help when you start off being very polite like that. You don't run into that every day. You know, it's not something like you walk into your house and you find your roommate um, with blood everywhere. She's on the floor and, uh, you know, she's 
she appears dead, but she doesn't really say that. She just says the word unconscious. And you would ex- you would hear panic and frantic and that fight or flight response when you're in that fight or flight fight response. Because keep in mind, how does she know that there's not anybody else in the room? That should she you should have heard more fear. Like, you know, I just walk into the house and my my friend, my friend, you know, and and her, uh, you know, I don't have an issue with her uh, babbling on, but there would it would be more of an, a panicked environment. I mean, her voice would hear, I would hear panic. I don't hear that in her voice, which is concerning to me. If you were there and you saw blood everywhere, it would be horror, horror in your voice. I'll have much more on the entire call in a minute. Let me introduce the two experts. You might call them both deception detectives who try to see if a caller says things to suggest she or he is a so-called guilty caller or not. Mark McClish says there's no such thing as a good liar, just poor listeners. I mean, the longer the statement is, the more the person talks, the easier it is to determine if they're being truthful or deceptive. McClish is a retired deputy U.S. Marshal who did hundreds of interviews over his career on the job and went on to teach for years at the Marshall's Training Academy. Today, he's a consultant in linguistic analysis. And people will always word their statement based on all their knowledge, which means their statement may contain information they did not intend to share. I don't know. I don't want to touch here, but... A couple years ago, McClish did a formal statement analysis on the 911 call for Faith's family and prepared a report, free of charge, He does that for families and law enforcement in specific cases. McClish says this about the speakers in these emergency situations. They don't realize um, what they're saying, how they're formulating their statement, how they're phrasing it, and they'll use certain words that that show that that, um, they're withholding information or they're uh, being deceptive. They're not an expert at telling lies, and so it's more difficult for them to 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 tell that lie or to give a statement and not reveal the fact that it's a lie. A second expert, Susan Constantine, calls it silent messaging. Silent messages is the the messages that you may not pick up on. They're the quiet ones. They're the ones that that tell the story. When you start gathering these um, different indicators, it begins to unravel a story. And then the story starts to come alive the more they start talking. I reached out to Constantine, too, about the Karina Rosario call as relates to Faith's murder case. All humans have the uh, need to tell everything, even if it's incriminating. She studies what seems like fact, but often is far from it. Constantine does a wide range of work in the legal, courts, and corporate arenas, and does training and seminars in the statement analysis field. The subconscious mind knows the truth, and when they speak it or write it, there are leakages that come out in that in their statement or what they're saying. Constantine says it's like a teapot. When you try to contain in, um, all the steam and you know that you're about ready to blow, what happens is that it leaks out when the lever comes up. So the body, it'll leak out through their words, it'll leak out through their tone of their voice, it will leak mm-hmm. out in their body language. It's important to note that both McClish and Constantine knew little about Faith's case before they listened to the 911 call. They weren't trying to fit what they heard into a narrative. 
They were trying to let words alone write their own narrative of that scene, that moment in time, for the caller, in this case, Karina Rosario. McClish told me when there is deception present, they don't realize the signals that they're sending. That's right. Yeah, it's very difficult to give a lengthy statement and not reveal that you're lying or withholding some information. It's almost impossible. And in this case, both analysts consider a statement or series of statements over 8 minutes and 26 seconds, the length of the 911 call, plenty long enough. Okay, what's your address, ma'am? Keep in mind, as I've said earlier on the podcast, there was someone with Karina during this call, made after she returned home late morning after leaving the apartment at 4.30 the night before. The person with her, a mutual friend of Faith and Karina's, named Marisol Rangel. All I remember is just calling her name just because we knew she was there, like, Faith, Faith. So we found her. That's a brief clip from one of the rare interviews Marisol once did on the ABC show 2020. Marisol, on that terrible morning, was someone right there to help in the emergency, either checking for signs of life or in calming the caller. But there is no indication from Karina that she isn't alone or that Marisol was doing anything other than being silent. Not a hint. It's strange, but it's part of the scenario to evaluate when you listen to and study the call. Further, statement analysts include in their thinking the fact that most 911 callers are naturally traumatized and that can affect their words and behavior. They base their thinking on what the norm is and what's out of the norm in the 911 call universe. This call, despite all the tears, is said to be way out of the norm. The concerns expressed by Mark McClish and Susan Constantine, I interviewed them separately, start right off the top with word one, sentence one. Hi, um, I just like to say my name, my friend, like, you unconscious. The initial call for help. I mean, what we're looking for is is the caller. What is the caller asking for? The immediate thing we're looking for is, is, is a plea for help. Is there a plea for help, which we don't have in this 911 call, not not initially. The very first words out of our mouth were high, and, and we consider that to be an improper greeting. Uh, again, if you're talking to a friend, family members, you make a phone call, yeah, you may start off with that. But in a 911 call, when there's an emergency type situation, especially if you have a person that's unconscious, perhaps deceased, you're not maybe quite not sure, we expect them to get right to the point. And she's starting out saying, saying hi, and then she says, um, and that interjection there is a slight pause to give her time to think about, well, what should I tell this operator? So when she's at the very beginning, when she talks about hi, um, hi, um, there's that pause, that hesitation that's telling us that she's thinking and contriving what she might be thinking as a, a way of passing time. I was at home at the view. There was a, a disconnect in that affect of her voice. When she was talking, she sounded baby-like, like she was more the victim than the actual victim themselves. It's a little bit different because this is something that is occurring right now. Now, this is shock and awe time, okay? This is your roommate. You walk into your house and then all of a sudden you see your roommate on the floor. She's half naked. There's blood everywhere. You are going to be freaking out. You're not going to answer the phone. Um, you know, as in like, mm, I got to tell you something. I, um, I just like to say my friend, like, she's unconscious. Um, give me, give me the address. 
I just, I just moved here. I'm about to get it. Oh my god. It's um five six three nine Old Capitol Hill Road in Durham. When you hear truthful people tell you about an event, a horrific event, they, they're breathing, they're panicked, they're, there's no panic in her voice. It's forced trying to sound sad. Okay, you say your friend is unconscious? He's unconscious. I just walked in the apartment and there looks like there's blood okay, everywhere. Listen to me. Okay, listen to me. Her words tell you what she was thinking and feeling. It's very obvious that she was not panicked when she walked in the door. It, it just, she didn't have the affect of someone that has just seen a horrific scene. If you were there and you saw blood everywhere, it would be horror, horror mm. in your voice. And it's just like, there's just blood everywhere and she's talking in that baby talk. It, it's not consistent from what I have seen in the past or heard in the past when somebody walked in and did see this and they and they had no idea what was about. I mean, it's just not consistent. That's what it would point to, a lack of urgency. The tone of the of the call seems to be out of place. And so we want, we want to ask about that. And I'm sure they did. I just walked in the apartment and there looks like there's blood everywhere. Okay, right, so she used the word just, which means again, she's minimizing. Because most of the time, there's no reason to use the word just. You would just say, I, I walked through the door. Sounds like she's minimizing time. I just, you know, two minutes ago, wherever the case may be, walked into my apartment. This is what I found. There's an absolute reason why she used that word just. And then the word just would indicate maybe she's minimizing her actions. She did more than what she's telling us. So that's just something we want to pick up on and ask some more questions about. And, and then the language, uh, she's like, she's unconscious. She tells us the state condition of her friend, but she doesn't ask for any help for her friend. I, I believe she was actually deceased at that point in time. Okay, you say your friend is unconscious? She uses the word unconscious, which was a really odd word to use because when somebody is rendered unconscious, it's someone that has either been drunk and had passed out. That's a word that we would use at somebody that passed out. Mm -hmm. um, someone that was unconscious may have been hit over the head and was uh, left unconscious. But when you when she describes the event, what it looks like when she's, that's way beyond unconscious. I mean, that's a person that looks like she's dead. I think she fell off the bed because she's like off the bed. <laughs> Nowhere through here does she mention her friend's name. She never refers to her by name. That's, right. That shows distance, not closeness. When they are speaking about my friend without introducing who that friend is, that friend really is not a friend. Do you take anything away from the fact that she never said her, even her first name? I do. I mean, we expect her uh, at some point and very early to, to mention um, the victim's name, and again, the very first sentence is just my friend, shows more closeness than just referring to as you know, my friend. She doesn't properly introduce uh, the victim. How old is she? He's <laughs> Okay. <laughs> By not introducing them, it shows indication that they may not get along with that person. There's some tension in the relationship. Listen to me, is, is she breathing? I don't know. You need to check and see, is she breathing? 
Kate. I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think so is again one of those when we hear that it is a very weak response I don't think so it was my impression she knew she wasn't breathing because she says I don't think so I don't know I don't think so she says it twice and that's repeated assertion um, you know when somebody repeats something they're trying to convince you of something by repeating it more than once then it goes into there's blood everywhere and she repeats it twice there's blood everywhere there's blood everywhere in fact, by my count, through the course of the call, Karina Rosario says there's blood everywhere, at least five times, the same words. And remember the friend on the scene, Marisol Rangel, who was right there with Karina Rosario. Karina never told the 911 operator, never called out to Marisol. Yeah, he says that go to or, or her to give her a directive, say, go, go check and see if she's breathing, or you go touch her. You don't even hear that. Nothing. But nothing. You would hear panic or something in the background. There's nothing. There's blood all over the pillows, like in the comforter. I just don't know what happened. Okay. I don't know what happened. Yeah, in regards to her statement, I don't know what's happening, uh, three times throughout this uh, 911 call, she will tell the operator that I don't know what's happening or I don't know what happened. And so that is somewhat suspicious for saying it three times. I mean, obviously, if you don't know what happened, you're going to tell the operator that, but to continually saying that uh, it raises a red flag. And it's something, we, again, we want to ask a few more questions about. You know, did, is she overemphasizing this, trying to convince us she doesn't know what happened, or you know, is she being truthful? She's not moving. Okay. No. Can, will you touch her arm? Tell me, does she, how does she feel? She's not moving. It's hard to know for sure, but there just seems to be no attempt to help Faith. Not from Karina, not from the quiet Marisol. There would be this action thing going on, and it, and it just is, it's odd. It's just very odd. It gives me pause, meaning that whether this person is telling you all the truth. Okay, ma'am, we need to find out if we can help her or not. You've got to help. You know, do as I'm asking so we can help her. All right? Okay. Okay. If you can, lay her flat on her back. Remove any pillow. Lay her flat on her back. And anytime a person answers a question with a question, it means they were asked a sensitive question. Whether it's, you know, it's a stall tactic to give them time to think about, well, how should I answer this? I'm sorry, I'm really trying. It's okay, honey. It's okay, honey. Listen to me. Okay, all right, all right, all right. I'm sorry, I'm really trying. And again, the word really is not needed. You know, I'm trying is the better statement. But when people use words like, you know, really, they're, they're sometimes used to bolster their statement, but oftentimes it weakens the statement. At two minutes and 37 seconds into the emergency call, Karina does ask for help. Yes, I've got somebody coming. I've got somebody coming. Okay, I want you to go back into the living room, okay? You I need to go in. What's going on? Like, okay, listen, listen to me. In my room that like was not here before. Okay, listen like to me. Someone came in here. There's stuff in my room that doesn't finish the sentence. Like again, finish. She has another thought. Was not here before. So. 
Yep. You know, so she's now focused with things that are not there before. Like what things? She doesn't say what they are. There's not there's things there that are that were not there before. When somebody starts to f- give you freely additional information, it's doubly important because they put it in there for a purpose. I can't believe this. No, someone had to have been in there. Three times, Karina says, basically, someone had to have come in there. All right, what, what did like you say your name was again? Okay, I don't care. Looks like someone came in here, she says. I don't understand. And she had mentioned that there, uh, there was stuff in the room, and but she never tells the operator what that is, what stuff is in the room that shouldn't be there, or what looked out of place. He just mentions it. And everything a person says has a meaning. There's a reason why a person will put this information in their story. It looks like someone had been in there because she's okay. not like this at I don't know what Okay, okay. It's almost as if she's analyzing the scene. And she is. But why? Why is Karina taking careful stock of the scene, and more than once, saying she doesn't understand what happened, suggesting aloud that someone must have been in the apartment? But isn't that obvious? You just you just stay on the phone with me. Okay. <laughs> Why isn't she focused on getting someone there, on possibly saving Faith Hedgepeth? Again, why isn't she asking Marisol Rangel to see if Faith is breathing, if she is warm or cold to the touch, to try CPR? The paramedics are on their way. I want you to stay on the line. I'm going to tell you what to do next, all right? A friend is there, presumably able to assist but she's asked for no assistance. Marisol makes no sound that I can hear in the middle of a senseless and what should be panicked situation. I need for you to help her. I need for you to go up to her. And there's this, something I didn't pick up on until I listened to the call again and again. You just stay on the phone with me until somebody gets there with you. All right? Okay. But Karina wasn't alone, was she? That's the perfect spot at last to tell the dispatcher, but she didn't. It just doesn't make sense. Again, I did not know somebody else was there just in listening to the 911 call. And so it is kind of strange because, again, you would expect at some point she would reveal the fact that somebody else was there. You sit down on the couch and don't touch anything, okay? You just sit down. I'm not touching anything. Okay, okay. Just stay on the phone with me. I see the police. You see the police? Yes. Okay. You let me know when they get in there with you, and then you can talk to them, all right? I just don't want you to be alone right now. Are they in there with you? They coming in? Yes. Thank you. Okay, honey. All right. Bye-bye. Ms. Rosario has told people that she was interviewed for up to 10 hours. So there's no question in your mind, probably, that the investigators, when they heard this call, got down to some serious questioning about it. Yeah, I mean, I believe they probably, any question that we just brought up here, I I believe they probably asked her about that. What it tells me is is that they weren't getting the information that they were looking for, because if if she is completely truthful, a truthful person, tell you everything I know, it's not gonna be a 10 hour interview. There are multiple indicators that that she knows more than what she's talking about. It is my professional opinion. She has knowledge of something prior to the event
It's an opinion, lots of opinions, assessments from Susan Constantine and Mark McClish, statement analysts. Dara 911, where is your emergency? Homicide cops listen to 9-1-1 calls too. They have assessments too. If I were working this case, I would be spending an awful lot of time and going through that call word by word. I'll have more on that call from former homicide detective Chris Morgan in episode seven of Pursuit. And it's also time to hear from a question document expert who spent years working in the FBI lab, who tells me what she thinks about that mysterious note left at the scene. I do think there is some element of disguise. I don't think the person's writing in their natural writing. Next time on Pursuit. Pursuit is available on most major podcast sites. If you like it, please rate, review, and subscribe. I appreciate your support. You can also find and listen to episodes on PursuitPodcast.com. If you have information or thoughts for me on the case, in writing or via an anonymous voice mailbox, go to the contact page on the website or reach out on social media. The number for Chapel Hill Police Crime Stoppers is also on PursuitPodcast.com. There is currently a potential $40,000 reward available in the Faith Hedgepath murder investigation.